making a no-budget film? It's like going to war. But you're not General MacArthur, storming the beaches with the force of a hundred thousand soldiers. Instead, you're, you're more like a squad of Viet Cong guerrillas behind enemy lines, trying to complete an impossible mission using guile and your wits. The odds stacked against you. It's risky, difficult, and dangerous. I can swear to it. I've been there. Right. We're more of a... Uh, Fly by the seat of your pants. Yeah, stream of consciousness kind of <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Speaking of which, welcome to the Grindhouse podcast. I am joined once again with uh, our our semi-regular co-host, Jude S. Walko, director of uh, Shark Island and The Incantation. Go see The Incantation and soon Shark Island. Go see it? Well, In the know. sea? Sharks? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Go see it. This is going to set the tone for this podcast. Perfect. So, on this Sunday morning, glorious Sunday morning. Feeling like Sunday morning. You know, I was I was thinking that I just, this has been, um, we're, we've officially reached the halfway point on the series that I'm working on. And um, as such, the hours have been long. And we really haven't had a lot of time to watch any movies and, and certainly uh, dig into doing any research or analysis, but I did see something this week that I want to talk about, and I thought you being on the show would offer some really unique perspective in terms of what I like to call the Monday morning filmmaker. Yay! You know, we talked a little bit last week about how, uh, in relation to Star Wars, how once uh, an art project has been put out into the world, the, the question of whether or not it belongs solely still to the artist or at that point, if it's more of a communal ownership of whatever this art is, be it a movie or a song or whatever. Right. So, you know, tonight will be another episode of the final seasons of Game of Thrones. And after last week, last week's episode, uh, and even the, really the week before that, I saw what is inevitably the come down of a popular franchise. Yeah. Um, I saw a lot of people criticizing the show from a very unique perspective um i saw terms like the writing was lazy hmm. i saw terms like they must have senioritis they must i, I saw terms like it's clunky <laughs> these are these are terminology being used by people who actually don't work in film hmm. um, some of them were reviewers most of them were just fans people who watched sort of casually yeah. but i want but as someone who has created art i want to get your perspective on what it you, i mean by putting out your own feature film, yes, you've you got reviewed by many people. I'm yeah, sure I got a lot. I got about sixty professional, well, you know, published reviews. Published and, reviews, and right? Of course, all the people online. So, so you are no stranger then to be on the receiving end of this kind of criticism. That's what she said. No, it's true. <laughs> it's it's very true. Yes, I've received a lot of criticism, both good and bad. So, from my perspective, I, I always tend to get. Um, well, let, let me backtrack a bit. When I watch film and television, hmm. in particular, hmm. I I can't help but do it in two ways, oftentimes simultaneously. Um, obviously, the point of storytelling is entertainment, mm -hmm. but not just that. I think the point of I think I think great storytelling often evokes thought, often invokes um, potentially controversy, mm. and and certainly in every instance, if it's done even remotely correctly, even bad sometimes. Mm. Emotion. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, but simultaneously, I also try to watch from perspective mm. of what the intent was. Right. Right. So, for example, if you watch, speaking of shark movies, if you watch Sharknado, mm-hmm. to right. judge it against Silence of the Lambs right. would be doing the film a disservice. For sure. Right. Because that's not the intent of the filmmaker. Right. Exactly. What's your perspective on that? Like, what is, as, as people were going through and, and, um, reviewing and criticizing even just people on you know twitter and social media responding to your film yeah well here's a a interesting point i'm probably not like a lot of people in this aspect but when i requested people to review my film because you you do that for publicity so literally spent thousands of uh, sent thousands of emails out i would say to them don't don't sugarcoat it you know, just to tell it like it is, because that's that's what's fair to the audience. You know, just tell it good, bad, or indifferent, and I put that in the, right in the email. Um, because a lot of times, especially with film reviews, um, if you know these people are in your certain community, like if you're in the horror community, or you got this thing right. through a buddy, or like you're doing them a favor by giving them some airtime or whatever, um, they may tend to skew it. Too good, you know. Right, and I, right. I don't think that's fair. Of course, everyone loves that, and sure. it, it strokes the ego. And I'm sh- and and actually, part of the PR machine with these bigger studios is they do that on purpose, and that's why right. you see a lot of positive stuff coming out for stuff before it's even out. And you know, that it's it's like kind of taboo to say something bad about a bigger studio picture, unless the intent is to motivate additional clicks. Right. Because we've we because we we live in a in a world where movie reviews m- movie are reviews are as much as part of the PR machine. Yeah. As the commercials or the or the trailers, oh, right? the posters. Yeah. Um, the it's a little bit of a lost art, mm. the art of film critique. Mm. You know, or the Siskel or, and Ebert days, right? Or deeper analysis of like, yeah, what's the intent of the filmmaker? What tools to use to execute yeah. this vision? But simultaneously, what as as the internet continues to be unfiltered, yeah, and there is no real tastemaker, or there is no more um, seal of approval as to what's a legitimate site or yeah. not. It feels like people turn to being. Um, intentionally irreverent and intentionally mm. uh controversial in their reviews of things that are popular for sure and you know i think i think the internet is a great example because as we know there's a lot of anonymity on the internet and you can hide and say whatever you want in a lot of cases especially like on <clears throat> places uh you know like rotten tomatoes or or uh, amazon prime or whatever where you're writing a review you could just create a a name. Right. And oftentimes many filmmakers will create, you know, with their buddies, like 15 reviews. <laughs> yeah. And it both goes both ways. Movie reviewer 23. Not to mention the Russian bots. Ah, the Russian bots. Which, are, which is a real thing that has occurred for movies like Star Wars. Yeah, it's crazy. So, um, so that being said, when people are anonymous, they tend to go to extremes because they can say whatever they want. And I've, I've found, like in my movie, as an example, um, our, our main guy... We use Dean Cain, and he's a very right. polarized guy because he's a right-wing conservative. So he's often on Fox News, and he's a Trump supporter and what have you. So a lot of people would base their uh, critique of the film just because it, it, either they were pro or anti-Dean Cain. The, their own emotional bias. Their own emotional bias, which had nothing to do with the film. Like, right. if you didn't know who Dean Cain was, even if you didn't know he was Superman, you didn't know he was you know a right-wing guy, 
you should just watch the film on its own merit. Right. But they would either say, you know, this guy sucks. I can't believe he said that. Or they would be like, oh, he's the greatest thing since sliced bread. So it's like, yeah, that's great. But what about the movie? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> you know? So that was a big, uh, a big issue we kind of ran into for probably a good, you know, what, 30, 40% of our reviews were saying something positive or negative about Dean Kane, not about his performance, right. but about his <laughs> politics. Right, know? right. And so that's that's one of the interesting things about it is that there is an emotional investment in in the way that we uh, consume pop culture. There was a, I was watching a I think it's a Wisecrack did a, a little vlog on Star Wars and in particular what is wrong with you know the Last Jedi and and the the the, the legitimacy issue hmm. uh, the legitimacy crisis that Star Wars is facing. Yeah, and. They use some historical context uh, to try to break down why a certain section, and I do want to emphasize a certain sect of fans, are reacting to Star Wars in the way that they are because it's still making money like hand over fist. <laughs> right. But they, talk, they talked about how when something becomes the size of Star Wars, mm -hmm. there becomes an emotional attachment and an identity that's based around it. Sure. And um, in the beginning of its inception it had one all-ruling master which mm. was george lucas right he created it and by but through his creation of it it legitimized his stewardship of the property mm -hmm. and therefore legitimized anything that he blessed and anointed as part of canon right right yeah now you can make the argument that over time that um, like all empires, it started to erode from the inside, and that <laughs> and the, the, the Jar Jar Binks of the world and other such. It's uh, too Jar Jar. Yeah, <laughs> began to rot and to put into question his legitimacy. But but what came from that was it was sold to Disney. Yeah, which per this vlog, you can make the equivalency to say the Catholic Church. <laughs> right. You know, this is this massive institution yeah. that has now taken over this property and yeah. who gave them the authority to yeah. speak for God right essentially <laughs> if George Lucas is God yeah then Disney is the Catholic Church yeah and who gave them the authority to speak for him and to speak into in terms of what is legitimate within this world or not yeah and then when you factor in things like them um you know beyond the movies Star Wars had a lot of uh, the extended universe you know the books and the games and the, and whatever and when, as and I actually I do think that George Lucas started decanonize some of these things mm -hmm. as he went back to make the prequels. Mm -hmm. But Disney did away with them entirely. Right. Essentially, called it a blank slate. Yeah, said, yeah. the movies are canon. Yeah, and everything else is not unless we say it. Yep. So people who had these strong beliefs, like just, just take for example a cosplayer. Yeah. Who plays uh, Grand Admiral Thrawn? Mm -hmm. Right. And this is someone who has I, I know we we know mm -hmm. someone who has who has a, a side identity. Of playing Hawkeye, mm -hmm, right. right from Avengers. Yep. And um, so now, imagine if this person was was playing Grand, Grand Admiral Thawne. Yep. And this is they go to every convention, and they go to, uh, you know, they've they've had their they've taken photos with Mark Hamill, mm -hmm. whatever. And all of a sudden, now Disney, this this usurper of authority, now says that character no longer exists. Not <laughs> right. really. He's a he's a mythological ter he, you know, he's a rumor, he's a ghost story around a campfire, but those aren't canon. This is canon. Yeah. So what you have is this rebellion from, from a rebellion. A, a rebellion <laughs> <laughs> of this new galactic empire, <laughs> yeah. which is the mouse house. <laughs> yes. 
um, you know, angrily flooding the internet with, uh, like, you know, with tweets. You know, they are the um, the internet's version of Martin Luther yeah, rising man. against the the Catholic Empire that is the Mouse House in Star Wars. <laughs> and and I find that the same thing is starting to happen with with Game of Thrones. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you've seen it. I mean, longer than me. Remember when? Tarantino was like the hottest thing in the world. Yeah. Every every person my age, mm-hmm. probably most people your age, mm-hmm. were like, if you were in film, you wanted to be Tarantino. Right. right? Yeah. He was like, he was like the, the yeah. king of cool. Yeah, for sure. And then, inevitably, as we build our heroes up, yeah. America's favorite pastime is then to tear them down. I mean, what about Robert Rodriguez? Robert Rodriguez is another great example, right? I mean, I want, there, was a, there was a time within the indie world yeah. when... It was a required. You couldn't even get on a set if you had not read *Rebel Without a Crew*. <laughs> right. It was. It was like a prerequisite. Yeah. And then over time, and look, that's not to say anything about the in terms of the the quality of the projects. I mean, I think yeah. *Sin City* two has flaws, and yeah. you can certainly make the argument that *Spy Kids*. You know what? Okay, <laughs> so that's an interesting point, right? So. Is Spy Kids Desperado or Ed Mariachi? Right. Or, no, it's definitely mm-hmm. not. Is it? Is it Sin City? No. But right. but was that its intent? Right, it wasn't. No. The intent of Spy Kids was for him to do something for his children. Right. And for, his, for a father to share an experience with right. his children. But this is where, quote, unquote, purist would say, come on, Rebel Rodriguez. Why are you working for the band? You're selling out. Sure. You're selling toys now. Right, right, 100%. And they will say that because most of these purists have no context for exactly. history. Because exactly. anyone who is a big Rebel Rodriguez fan knows that he started as a cartoonist. Right. And he, one of his very early cartoons was a was a cartoon strip around his family as kids. <laughs> right. He actually... He actually started doing a, a children's-centric comic strip awesome. before he ever moved into El Mariachi. That's great. And in fact, his foray into doing El Mariachi was based on his desire to just make something and sell it. Mm-hmm. That was a pure commerce move. Right. He, so it's in fact the other way around. It's in fact the other way around. <laughs> right, and he thought, wisely, I, I walk into these these Spanish uh, grocery shops and I see these made for made for VHS back then, mm-hmm. you know, action, you know, Spanish only speaking action flicks. Yeah. And he did some research and found out how much he could sell them for, how much they made for. Yeah. And so he thought, well, I'll make mine for 7K. Yeah. And I will. Mind um, boggling. Yeah. And I'll sell it for 20K and I'll make a profit. Yeah. And that was just his business model. It was just a widget transaction. <laughs> now, the angry nerds on the internet will come at us and they'll start saying, well, he didn't actually make his film for 7,000. You know, uh, the. the Ended up the studio ended up putting one hundred thirty five thousand dollars, hundred thousand dollars into for. But it doesn't matter. Right? None of that. None of that makes any difference. Right. It's the spirit of what the, the intent. Yeah, the intent. And so, when you talk about a film like Spy Kids, and you start to say like, "Well, look, that that is sort of that's the kind of artistic move that will angry those who have formed an identity around what they thought this artist was about." Right. And then from there. It leads to like the sort of the angry backlash, right? And that's not even that. That also discounts just life, you know. Like, of course, Robert Rodriguez is gonna go. Some studio offers him <laughs> whatever right. twenty million dollars to do this franchise or more. Of course, he's gonna do it. You would do it too, like right. It, it's life goes on, you know. He's not always gonna be making mariachi one through seven, you know. Right, and <laughs> and uh, he, he's not Slayer. <laughs> right. You know, I, I always talk about Slayer as the. Um, the, the epitome 
or ACDC is another great example. The epitome of bands who never really deviated from their core sound. Mm-hmm. So they're they're always popular with their fan base. Right. And they might have had peaks where they broke out beyond that. Yeah. But they've always kind of stayed pretty centric to what they do. Yeah, yeah. Not a lot of risk taking. Right, those, exactly. You know? And I think that sometimes the most hardcore fans expect that same level of consistency yeah. and unwaveringness. Yeah. From the artists that they watch. Right. It's it's like the Beatles, man. You know, they go solo and then John Lennon goes solo and they're like, oh, fuck this guy. They won't even return his calls, you know. Yeah, it's right. Like, Come on, he's still a Beatle. Like, he's part, he's he's a musical genius. Yeah. But it's not coming out canned like it was, well, you know, it, what their expectations were. I think that's a good point. Not like it was. Yeah, not like it was. Exactly. Right. Hashtag so, not like it was. So, it brings us to talking back about Game of Thrones. Yeah. And so, the criticism that this season, maybe to a lesser extent last season, received. Mm-hmm. And I think largely, um, I think largely what it it is a it, the I think one of the things that I think that is largely responsible for this new backlash that I'm seeing building up is an expectation mm-hmm. that's maybe not being built. Yeah, certainly I've seen people often comfortably lean back on well the books the books the books right right but that's a different medium. Yeah, it that's is. A, like if you if you're just Transcoding from a book to an, to a movie with yeah. no artistic license, right. then what's the point of it? Yeah, just read the fucking book, right? You know. Plus, it would be sixteen seasons long. Well, right, right. <laughs> and it would and it would never live up to what you built up in your mind. Yeah, that's the that's the main point. I mean, the beautiful part of a medium is that it gives you a different experience. Yeah, right. It's like the difference between um, even within the world of film. Yeah, the difference between doing. We've both worked in animation. Mm-hmm. And we both worked in live action, mm-hmm. and you could do the same. Like for for example, there's a there's an Adams Family movie right. coming out yep. that is going to be. It's, I guess it's 3D modeling. Hey? Mm, yeah, it's not it's not stop motion. It lo- yeah. It's in the style of stop motion, but yeah. it's 3D modeling. Like, yeah, like uh, what was it? Paranormal. Yeah, was paranormal. Paranorman. Uh, I think it was some. Yeah, they use some motion capture in that and stuff. Right. Now, yeah. now that movie is going to have a different. Feel than the comic strip. Mm-hmm. It's going to have a different feel than the original cartoon. Yeah, the original TV shows. Yeah, certainly different than the Barry Sonnenfeld live action movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to have. It's going to feel different, even if it's retelling a similar story. Yeah. So what? So as an artist who's who's had the the, the stones to put your work out <laughs> and have it reviewed. Yes. What is what's your experience with that like? Well. Uh... You know, it's it's a double edged sword because some people, some people really love your style, and and uh, uh, you can get a a good, a nice puff to the ego. But I think right. that's dangerous too. Sure. And then some people just trash you, right? So I like the ones who are um, honest. You know, like I I love a review that's like middle of the road, and it goes, right. and it and it, and it like I've I've got a couple that are, you know, quite long, and they'll say things like. Well, X, Y, and Z was really not up to par on this movie, and I think they could do better. But they'll be, but they recognize some things that I yeah. put a lot of thought into. Like this is obviously, yeah, and it sounds like they put thought into. Reviewing they put thought your into work. it. That's what I love, and they say, you know, this guy did a lot of research, or he based this on his experience, or I can see where this character is going, or this is little nuggets in the story. You know, maybe the lighting wasn't the greatest. Maybe the acting was this. Maybe it was a little slow paced. Whatever. All these critiques, but then he brings out something. Um, and I really love those. I respected them, and those are the those are the reviews I would push too. Because right. when when you do um, 
PR and, and stuff for your film, like the distributors, like give us like five or 10 reviews that you want to promote too. Yeah, right. So I would always give them the ones that were honest. Cause I felt like, I don't want to say this is the greatest fucking movie ever. And then people were like, what is this shit? Right. Or right. vice versa. Unless that's true. Like, but I found, but I found that the guys that really watched it and spent the time to, um, critique it good and bad were, were the good ones, you know? So I really, I really love those reviews of our film. Um, yeah. Did you, um, wasn't there one? I think I think this was my favorite one where the reviewers uh, criticized the actors for having a fake French, a- <laughs> the worst French accent. Yeah, and they were French people. Yeah, the the, the irony of that, of course, is that yeah. outside of three, yeah, three actors, yeah, all the rest of the actors were actually French. And yeah, that is the way actually the way French people sound. Oh no, there were some real doozies. And then I I found a a couple people, and I always find this. They, they always you know, there's that old saying. If you if you can't do you teach kind of right. thing and I find that a lot of film reviewers are failed filmmakers right so it's like they hold this grudge it's just like a lot of agents and casting directors tried to be actors and they right. didn't so then they found this revenue source of you know tooting their own horn but it's like uh, when you when you see these people um, you look at them and they don't have a lot of background in what they do like right. even I saw the I saw the director of uh, I think his name is Jean-Pierre Genot or something. I saw a movie called something, The Adventures of T.S. Spivet. He also directed Amelie. Yes. Um, and, and he did a speech and he was talking about Robert McKee, mm-hmm. who's a pretty famous, you know, he's up there with Joe Campbell about structure and writing stories. Right, right. And this guy was in the Q&A and he just calls out Robert McKee. And he's, he's like, if you look that guy up, he, he doesn't have that many published scripts. <laughs> right. He doesn't really know what he's doing, but he knows structure, you know, like, so he yeah, teaches right. the structure. And that's kind of the, that's what I found, um, like like our worst. Not that our film doesn't have flaws; it has a lot of flaws. Um, it, it's a low budget film, but one of our worst reviewers who who didn't take the time and just like shredded it, and clearly probably didn't even watch the whole film, just spent like three paragraphs of saying why it was the worst thing to ever come out. Right. Then this guy happens to be writing scripts as well and not published scripts. Right, of course. So he's constantly like... He's angry. Eh. He's jaded. He's jaded, right? Um, and he's trying to he's trying to get that brass ring. Right. Whereas opposed to us, we just did it. You know, yeah. like, yeah. Well, and, 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 and in fairness, you've put in how many years to get to the point I, of being able to just do it? Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, right? Exactly. And that, that's another thing I've said on this podcast, too. Just like all my experience on film sets and storytelling and all that, it all comes together as a culmination to do that. So, yeah, it's like that quote. Uh, overnight success thing, right? Is, there's no such thing as an. Well, there was success. a there was someone on Twitter. I forget her name, and I wouldn't give her publicity <laughs> anyway. But she uh, so in in last week's episode of Game of Thrones, outside of any of the creative choices that might have upset people or the um, historically inaccurate warfare that might have occurred on <laughs> right. on, a, on a show about dragons right. and magic, yeah, because there are dragons in history, <clears throat> right? There. <laughs> There was one. There was one. There was one person on Twitter who made the comment. Although, so there was a um, someone left a crafty cup in a scene. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and of course, in the world of Game of Thrones, to see what it looked like a Starbucks cup, it wasn't. It, it you know, it was, yeah. it was obviously sort of the generic crafty right. tea or coffee or whatever. Hot coffee now. Yeah, and so this person on Twitter who who fashions herself as a pop culture. What does she say? She's a pop, not a pop critic even, like a pop. I don't review her. Chaperone? Yeah. She was like, oh, they clearly, the writers have senioritis. Uh, do, oh, has anyone ever been on a hot set before? And I, 
<laughs> I couldn't help. I so of course my first inkling is when I hear that. Yeah. Is well, first off, it was the middle of a scene, so there's a lot of people on that set. Yeah. A hot set is a term typically used when you leave the set, <laughs> right? Not, right. When, not when you're, when you're on, on the set, set. right? Um, so already she's using buzzwords yeah. that in in an improper context of of anyone who actually worked in film, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it would be different if they did a publicity photo of an empty room. Yeah. And there was a Starbucks cup in there. And then, yes, I would understand that, yes, that was a hot set. Who left that in there? Yeah. And why didn't the photographer see it? Yeah, yeah. But this was a scene, and it was probably one of the actresses or actors who were working in all night yeah. and in cold weather and had a tea, and they just forgot to move it off. You know, yeah. and, and how it got missed by the director and the AD and the set yeah. deck and everyone involved all the way down through post. Yeah. Who knows? But these things occur. Right. So I look her up, and she's done nothing. Yep. Nothing in film. Not even a PA. Yeah. Right? So I just asked her, have you ever been on a hot set? <laughs> have and, you ever been on a hot and, set? And, you know, she responds, uh, it'll be okay, it'll be okay. I'm like, no, 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 it will be okay, because I'm actually in the middle of an overnight right now. I'm on set <laughs> on my 40th film or whatever it is now. <laughs> yeah. And um, you don't know what you're talking about. Right. It's like, it's going to be okay, yeah. because people like me with real experience are going to point out <laughs> When, when charlatans like you charlatans. try to speak for an industry that you contributed Quacks. nothing to, I uh, yeah, it's it's a bit crazy. Um, I I always equate my analogies to you know seven forty sevens for some reason. Right. It's a very good one. So that'd be like me going you know getting on a plane and like seeing you know the going man. Why is that? Uh, you, have you guys even adjusted an aileron before? Like, I don't even know what a fucking aileron is. Right. But I heard it once. Yeah, exactly. It sounds cool. So, well, I, you know, it, it happens even within the industry as well. I've heard yeah. people all the time say, oh, well, it's so easy to budget something for a million dollars that's full union. <laughs> right. And so then I asked, so can I see one of your budgets as an example? And they're like, well, I don't do budgets, I do lighting. Right. I'm like, cool. So you don't have any experience cool story, in, in what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You have re- like that would be the equivalent of me going up to a uh, I don't know a construction foreman yeah. and telling him how to lay the foundation for a home. Like, I don't know the fuck the first fucking clue on how to do that. Exactly. Which is not to say that I'm trying to make the argument that you can't critique things. Sure. I'm not saying that at all. I, I do believe that that critique is important. Absolutely. I think that um, as a fan, you have. You have an opinion. Right. You should have an opinion. You should feel something. Yeah. And if you don't feel something, that's the true failing. Yeah. You're you're not film. you're a paying consumer and an audience. Member. That's right. Like I, I started watching that new Ted Bundy movie with Zac Efron, and I turned. I just I didn't hate it. Yeah. I, I didn't love it. Yeah. I honestly could not care less about it. Yeah. It felt fine. Yep. And which I think is one of the meanest things you could ever say about a film. Yeah. It felt perfectly fine. About halfway over, I just. Again, it didn't turn it off with disgust. I just was bored, and I walked to my room and I put YouTube on. It's like the Hallmark Ted Bundy kind of thing. Kinda, yeah. It was yeah. like it was like it was. It just it was fine. It was yeah. fine. It just didn't engage me. It didn't, yeah. You know, it was just, it just it technically was sound. Yeah, yeah. But there was just no heart behind it for me. Yeah. So I, you don't have to be a filmmaker to have that opinion. Right. Anyone can have that opinion. Yeah. Here's where I think that people, I think what has happened. Um, as the internet has evolved, I think what's occurred is that we've developed, and I and I do think it's a vocal minority, but we've developed a vocal minority of the Simpsons comic book guy. <laughs> Worst comic ever. Worst comic ever. Oh my god. That's not how I would have done it. You wouldn't have done anything. You didn't do anything. Because you're sitting around mm-hmm. not contributing back. Yeah. Now, now there are a lot of, uh, again, I'll take 
There's a lot of one of one of the things that happened in Game of Thrones. Spoilers for anyone who didn't see two episodes ago. Shame on you, or or who just doesn't care. Uh, a, a character that you probably didn't expect ended up killing a bad guy, mm-hmm. and most people pegged at least two or three other characters that would have been uh, more obvious candidates yeah. than the one that that um, that ended up killing this big bad guy. Right? Yeah. Now. I saw. Now I understand if just emotionally you would have preferred one of your favorites to have done the deed, right? Right. Um, but I saw people. The character in question is younger of age, you know, mm-hmm. minor, maybe minor, maybe just barely child of adult. Mm-hmm. You know, but I saw people be like, "Oh my god, that's a it, she's a female." Because mm-hmm. we know that's a hot button issue. God forbid <laughs> females do anything on in a film that's heroic because then they're called a Mary Sue, right? <laughs> but. Um, but you know there was a lot of people who criticized why she was too young. She was a girl. There's no way she would have beaten a big, you know, big bad person. And as someone who practices jujitsu, like I recognize the ability for a small person to take out a big person. Yeah. You know, I think I think Hoist Gracie would have some words <laughs> with you when you say that a smaller a smaller person can't vanquish a larger, more intimidating opponent. Right. For sure. Um, but if you know, if it's just a matter of like emotionally, I would have felt more satisfied if. You know, Jon Snow would have done it, or Daenerys would have done it. Mm-hmm. Then that's fine. That's a legitimate criticism. That's an emotional response. Yeah. But when people say like, "Oh, that is hack writing," they just came up. I had people telling me they just came up with that in the moment, and then right. I I found a clip yeah. from the showrunner. Yeah. Who said we've known this about this for at least four seasons? Right. Exactly. We planted the seed. Yeah, and if you go back and you can certainly see where yeah. it leads to that. Right. Um, I think that people have gotten very comfortable just making these sort of assumptions because yeah. emotionally it didn't deliver in, in, in not even a, a non-satisfying way, but just in a way that is different than what they wanted. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's happened. They're emotionally invested and then <clears throat> everyone <clears throat> thinks they're a screenwriter and a filmmaker and they're not. Yeah. And it's and I think that what's occurred is that there is a lack of understanding on how to watch a film to it, it for the perspective of being critical. Yeah. Now, certainly, I think if you just watch something like I watched that, uh, I forget the name. It's a so stupid long name, like Wickedly Evil, Vile, blah blah blah. It's a Ted Bundy film uh-huh. on Netflix. Yeah. Um, I didn't watch it for critique. Right. It was the end of the night. I was yeah. Really marginally paying attention. Yeah. So for me to say it was fine, it didn't interest me, but yeah. it didn't disgust me. It didn't turn me off. It was just eh. Yeah. Um. I think that's a I think that's a fair criticism to say. It's not indicative of the filmmaker's ability to create a film. Right. It was just it's just a response to my particular emotional response to it. Yeah, absolutely. Just what your mood is at the time. I mean, we watch movies for different reasons. Yeah, I mean, how many movies have you seen once? Some are like, yeah. meh, it's all right. Yeah, exactly. And then you go back and you watch sometimes even years later and you're like, well, how did I not fall in love with this the first time? <laughs> right. That happens all the time. You know, That's and, and like you said earlier about Robert Rodriguez, sometimes yeah. it's the place that you're at in life. It is, yeah. And all those things, environment, timing, uh, you know, what year is it? What's the politics? What's happening with the people making the film? Who, well, who's the actor in it? You know, like all these things are happening yeah. constantly. I, you know, I've talked often about how much I love the Hellraiser, original, yeah. <laughs> the original Hellraiser film, which is so great. Yeah. For so many reasons to me. Yeah. Um, but my stomach really turns in the in the early parts of the film where they they show the the chunks of meat. Yeah, and and maybe it's because for anyone I don't know if I've mentioned on the podcast, but for anyone who knows, I don't eat meat, and so like right, that's kind of a 
it's a very disgusting thing for me. Yeah. Like, like visually. Yeah, yeah. You, you could show me any like the, the scene where Frank uh, gets ripped apart by yeah. the hooks is is less bothersome than actually seeing the meat chunks on the ground. Like, <laughs> yeah. It, it it physically made me nauseous. Right. right? Yeah. And yeah. there are certain things that then now maybe when I first watched that film when I was sixteen. Yeah. Wouldn't have bothered me. Right. As I chewed out on a steak or whatever. Yeah. You know? Exactly. Yeah. It's kind of a matter of where you're at, at at that point in your life. Yeah, totally. And it, and I think something's to be said about you know what is the whether you whether whether it's the creator, you know whether it's the uh, George R. R. Martin's or the J. K. Rowling's or the George Lucas's or the director. Right. What is their what is their intent? Right. Because like we always say on a set, the, the the most protected thing on a set is the director's vision. Right. What's his vision? Don't fuck with his vision. We got to get him to his vision or her to her vision. Right. It's always about that. Um, so you got to see what that person's trying to tell you in this moment. So if you go into it and you're married to this uh, preconceived notion of how you want it to be or what you're expecting from this franchise or what you want this character to do, you're fucking yourself out of a, a moment that someone's giving to you, right? Yeah. So, you know, the same could be said about any art form. Like, art is subjective. The, the same people can look at a painting and I could look at it and say, that's the shittiest thing I ever saw. And then you could be like, that's that's a $2.5 million painting that yeah, be, belongs right. in the Louvre. The same painting or whatever, books or movies or anything. So, um, I think... And, and you know, when a, when a director puts their all into a film, they become an auteur for that moment in time right it's about what they're doing what they're feeling um and they'll they'll change certainly and 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 that's not even to say something's better or worse it's just a different part of them and at that time this is this this was you know this was taking over their lives they they were eating sleeping drinking and shitting this movie you can make an argument this is why so many reboots don't work yeah exactly right because how do you recapture that moment yeah, you don't. There's a there's an interesting quote that I just saw um, in relation to The Last Jedi, mm-hmm. where Ryan Johnson, the director, is doing a panel with Mark Hamill of Luke Skywalker fame, and um, Mark Hamill said, you know, I had so many arguments with Rain, or Ryan where I said, um, you know, we have to think about the fans, mm-hmm. and Ryan said, no, we have to think about the story. We have to think about our movie. Yeah, yeah. And that elicits a very volatile reaction from the people who are watching this clip and her reading it and certainly if you already have an opinion on what yeah. Last Jedi was or wasn't yeah but I agree with Ryan <laughs> right, I do too I, I did a I developed a film a few years back that was based on a very successful young adult novel mm-hmm. and um, the novel probably works fine as a novel but it didn't work as a, as a singular movie right it just the fundamentals of filmmaking weren't there yeah and we only really had time to do one half of the book anyway yeah. within a 90 minute film yeah so i remember uh, in the meetings i had uh, several arguments with one of the creatives who was a big fan mm-hmm. she was brought in to sort of speak for the fans yeah yeah and she understood that world yeah. in the way that a fan understands that world yeah and she would often have this argument no well you know, for example, um, this is not what this character looks like. Right. It's described differently. And yeah. I said, I understand that, but yeah. who's the best actor to convey it? Yeah. You know? Exactly. And, um, and as we were kind of going through the pitch, I saw something from a cinematic standpoint that I thought was really interesting. Yeah. There was a, there was a very uh, Professor X, Magneto relationship between two characters that eventually fall in love, but they have, at least at the, at the onset of this story, 
two conflicting viewpoints on how to they're you know they're essentially mutants of sorts right they're got wings and such mm-hmm. and they're ostracized from society and they both are looking at society from two different points of view yeah yeah one wants to belong one wants to stay isolated and right. so i saw that and i said boom yeah there's a cool thing we can do here that's yeah. maybe not in the book right but the book's written for seven-year-olds and now we're making this movie for those yeah. seven-year-olds who are now 27 year olds yeah, you exactly. know whatever it may be right and so um i think when you look now whether you think last jedi worked or didn't work is yeah. sort of beside the point i think that what ryan johnson said about serving the story first and not fan service yeah is important yeah totally yeah, I mean, I I also again I I keep harkening back to this like creator or director thing, right? So like, there's some people, especially in the franchise world, it's particularly relevant that will see a franchise and they'll have to read every book, see every right. you know, watch every movie, whatever, and they feel um, indebted to that that they have to be loyal to it a hundred percent. But I think that really skews what you're going to see on screen to the point that it's it's a burden you know it's like sure. too, it's too much stuff like who do i include who am i not going to fan etc cetera, etc cetera. and tim burton got a lot of slack when he did um uh batman right uh, and then kevin smith has this famous thing where tim burton goes <laughs> you know i never read a comic book in my life or a- something to a- that a- anyone who knows me knows that i would never read a comic book <laughs> yeah i never and then kevin smith was well it's obvious you know we saw your batman that you yeah. but but i think tim's point was that he didn't want to be jaded by all this stuff like right. like when when tim burton or anyone for that matter reads a script you're 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 seeing because it's your imagination right. just like when we read books individually we all picture game of thrones differently sure what's happening and he wanted to create his own world and i personally had that experience like i just i just directed the shark movie and right. there was a producer that was funding it and he was he wanted to be in on the creative heavily so he was like you have the keys but here's my suggestions and it got to a point where i was like look man you just gotta do your thing Bring the money, bring yourself, but you got to stay out of. You, you got to be right. like Superman and stay in your lane because you're <laughs> you're tainting the process. Right. This is not how it's done. Like it's got to be like because because I would see, you know, when I read it, I would I would immediately see a character as one way, and then I would do rewrites to make that character that way, and I would picture them different in my mind or whatever, and that goes all the way down to production design and you know sure. all the little details. Um, and sometimes you have to do that. Of course, with a studio, you have to do that because you got thirteen people going. But well, even in that, how many sets of you and I worked on where we where we see that we're standing there and we're just watching uh, multiple people? Yes. How do I want to say this? Multiple people putting more emphasis in suggesting shots and creative than doing their jobs. I, man, it sucks. You know, and I I get it. By you know, film is a creative. It seems like it's a creative endeavor, and it is in many ways a creative endeavor. Yeah. But um, there's a reason these positions are created to be individual positions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as a producer, I don't often give creative input. Yeah, it's not on, your job. You're not the. Yeah, like the series I'm working on now is not is definitely not my job. <laughs> right. now, it might, if if it revolves time or money. Yeah. Then maybe I I might say oh well instead of shooting it here where this is a big logistical nightmare right. what if we did it this yeah exactly you know there might be moments of that yeah um, on the flip side if I'm doing a uh, a small independent feature yeah. I might have way more creative input right exactly but but within the context of the job it's yeah. you you ultimately I, I I was given some advice a long time ago as a 
as a line producer yeah. that I still use. And I think it actually applies more broadly than it was given to me, which is our job is to protect and to serve. <laughs> That's you perfect. Know, it's it's protecting the budget while serving the vision. Yeah, exactly. You know? And I think anyone who works in production should understand that. Doesn't They don't always. Yeah. They, everyone seems to fancy themselves a director as well. But have you ever been on a hot set, though? I, I have. <laughs> I have. Last, I, uh... <laughs> a, couple, a couple nights ago, that set was pretty hot. That was lit. <laughs> that set was lit. And it was actually lit. <clears throat> and it was actually physically hot. <laughs> I uh, got this story talking about creatives. Uh, I did that movie, Dude, Where's My Car, back in the day with... Uh, dude. Dude. Sweet. <laughs> but what's mine say? Dude. Uh, and I ended up becoming uh, good friends with Danny Liner, yeah. who was the director. Rest in peace. He did Har- Harold and Kumar and some other stuff. But anyway, that was my first film with him. And uh, I was—I remember being on set, and there was all these creative executives because it was Fox. Uh, the writer is Phil Stark, who did—I think he worked on the. Uh, no, he worked on that '70s show, which is why they brought Ashton oh, on. That makes sense, yeah. So it was kind of like a cross-pollination thing. I think New Regency had their hand in the cookie jar. So there were all these people, and traditionally in the studio system, the 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 junior execs as we call them were brought up because they were people's assistants. So like, yeah, we've, they talked, would, we've had this conversation yeah, before, yeah. right? So they would be like sitting at a desk for three years, and then they'd be like, "Hey, go be a, an assistant, uh, uh, assistant, whatever, creative producer, whatever they called their names, all the made up titles." So one of these people came to set, um, and it was like, of course, it was like one of our. It's always like the hardest day when all the execs uh, want to show up. Always, because it's the day. coolest day. <laughs> it's the coolest day. So we're uh, at this crazy set. It was a junkyard and like, crazy stuff going on, and. We were interior, and one of these young 25-year-olds came in, and, you know, everyone's hustle and bustle. There's, like, 100 people on this set. And also, I might point out, this was probably in an age where the where the average age on set was, was oh. much older. Oh, much older, Not for like sure. now, where yeah. it's, for better or for worse, because <laughs> of technology, the yeah. the average age on set has yeah. is now probably, you know, mid-20s yeah. to early 30s. Absolutely. Whereas it might have been right. 40s to 50s. Exactly, right. So this person comes in, sees the drapes. And, uh, you know, again, it's a hustle bustle setting up the shot and is like, you know, I, I really don't like those red drapes. Can we change out the red drapes? And it, and it just like, they set it right at the worst possible timing. <laughs> and it's like when the record scratch is like, <laughs> right. and the, everyone turns around and Danny, the director is just like, he's like, get the fuck off my set. And he goes into the tirade. <laughs> I'm just like you know he like vents all his frustrations with these creatives and like right. I don't want to see any of you and he like kicks him off and from that day forward like that shit didn't happen right they well, still put gave notes quote unquote well but. you know look there's a we've also seen in fairness that that those positions exist for a reason as well I mean every yeah. every position in film exists for a reason right you know and it's just it's just a matter of uh, one of my favorite. Uh, historical philosophers of all time, Kenny Rogers. <laughs> you once, got no one to hold him. Yeah, you got no one to hold him, and you got no one to fold him. Um, so, so what? But even, but even within the context of a set, you still have these sort of Monday morning filmmakers who are just chiming in, and yeah. and they get very upset when you don't yeah. follow their train of logic. But yeah. but it's because I think sometimes they lack the general the general. Um, context for for how a vision it comes to come to be yeah exactly you know? yeah i mean i've been doing this for over 10 years and yeah. i and i when i got into this industry i fancied directing yeah and i did some shorts and stuff yeah. but then i realized i didn't know what i was doing yeah. and i got in the film and yeah. so even now there are times because i because i do a certain type of job yeah it 
to to pretend that even with my experience, I could just flip over right. into being a director would be right. foolish. So it'd be like saying, yeah. uh, th- th- it, would, it would be like Conor McGregor, who's a UFC fighter, yeah. saying, I can go box Floyd Mayweather. Right. Yeah, you can. Yeah, you're not going to win this. <laughs> right. And if, you're, and if you're an exceptional talent, yeah. you might be able to go 10 rounds. Yeah, yeah. But you're not going to, you just won't. Just yeah, because you just there's won't. levels to this. And so it, it all takes skill set. So again, yeah. I'm not trying to say, I'm not trying to say that people can't criticize yeah. film, and I can't. Right. I'm not saying that people have to enjoy films. Yeah, and I'm not saying that people. I don't. I just don't. What I don't understand is why people going in. They go into watching a piece of content with the intent of disliking it. I know that's that's just you're only you're only hurting yourself in that case. But to bring it back to set, I think uh, p- part of the problem on a in a in the digital world, I'll call it. Um, you know, everyone is young, so they're in their 20s and 30s, and they grew up with this independent film, and a lot of them have done independent films. They're either from AFI film schools, or they've done, you know, 10 shorts, or they've done two features with their buddies. So so they have this false sense of security of what a film set's supposed to be. Right. And they also, a result of that is um, they, everyone thinks they're a director or a DP or whatever. Like, they, they think, they, they think, they're either entitled to be or that they already are what they end up what they really end up wanting to be. Right. And the problem with that is, as you've seen, you get on a set and a DP or an AD is starting to chime in into yeah. the vision. And right. you're like, hey, homie, that's not your job. Right. Like, do do what you were hired to do. This is not a film by collaboration in that right. aspect, you know. I don't come around and tell you how to set your lights. Right. Or I don't, you know. Get you, I don't time your script out Chris, for you. Christian and... Bell might tell you when to set your lights. <laughs> well, he might, yes. <laughs> um, I was on a tech scout once a while back, and um, an AD in the middle of a uh, we were trying to set we were trying to set several elements, right? Yeah. And an AD made a creative suggestion, mm-hmm. and the production designer stopped and said, "Okay, but you're making that leap in this room here. Mm-hmm. But now when we show when we make this movie." Mm-hmm. You have to convince the audience who's watching that this train of logic. You got to explain it to them. Yeah, you know, like you can explain it away in your mind yeah. all you want. Yeah, but how do we, the rest of everyone, convey yeah. that to the audience so that when they see it, they buy into that logic? Yeah, and it was funny because she wasn't attempting to be mean about it. She was just being matter of fact. She was being matter of fact about that, but she was essentially saying like your idea sucks because <laughs> it did. It was just it was lazy. Yeah. It was lazy in, well, in the sense that it, it hadn't thought through the process. Well, that's the thing. You're also discrediting the people. The fucking director's been there since the inception of the script most of the time. Like, they've, sp- they've already spent a month or two mulling this over in their head. Obsessively. And you're, obsessively. And you're just going to come on, you know, on the tech scout and be like, oh, I think it should be done this way. Like, right. there's people that are hired for that. And, you know, and on your movie, we'll, we'll all respect it. From right, you, exactly. like we're not going to ask the key grip to come out and and see how <laughs> what the motivation of this <laughs> what character, what the motivation was. of the character is, right? I um uh, a friend of the show, David Andrew, is uh, directing his first short film, nice and um called The Body coming mm-hmm. out soon. Cool. Shout out to David, but um he I, I just met for whatever I, you know I've seen updates on the photos and I didn't remember I, mean, I don't remember the, the shooting schedule, mm-hmm. but um I I just sent him a. a a text. I said, "Hey, man, um, congrats on your short. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a big step. That is a big step. And uh, and and you know, I remember when he sent me the script for it, mm-hmm. and he asked me some my input, and I gave him my feedback, and just remember the excitement that he had. And, mm-hmm. You know, I, I had a couple of of notes out of context, just based on first reading, and then yeah. he kind of 
walked me through why he thought it should be this way. And I said, cool, great. You know, that made me feel like there was no further notes I need to give because yeah. he had his vision. Right, exactly. And I knew that. And that's all I kind of really wanted to see. Yeah. And so um, today's his last day of shooting. And they may be shooting now, for all I know. Mm-hmm. And um, he was telling me, uh, he was nervous because it's the last day of shooting. And also it's like a big effects day, I guess. They, oh, like, okay. they have a lot of elements today. Yeah. And I said to him, I was like, as long as you have your vision. Yep. And as long as you can communicate your vision. Yep. And as long as you can be adaptable in the in the face of life, yep. you'll be fine. It's yeah. going to go great today. Have a good day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And c- congrats on wrapping your short, right? Cause, uh, that's great. Because that's, that's all it is. That's all it really is to it. And then, you know, hopefully when he puts it out into the world, yeah. you know, it, it, that that vision that he clearly has yeah. is understood and recognized. Yeah, exactly. And I'll say on the, on the flip side of that, you know, like when I'm directing something – it, there's two there's two types of people there's types of people that try to force their uh, their version mm-hmm, on you mm-hmm. constantly what if we did this what if we did this what if we did this and then there's the people who are like I didn't really want to say something but do you think I could do this maybe it's an actor with a character sure, or whatever sure. and to me I have the same response to all of them I hear them out because I don't want to turn away a golden nugget that I didn't see yeah and and if it especially if it's like an actor coming from their character or someone who's who that's their profession a DP when it comes to lighting totally. or a shot or an angle of course I'm going to hear them out but also you kind of got to establish the hierarchy and be like cool in the, in the words of Effie, Effie Brown duly noted duly noted <laughs> got your note not really feeling that moving on you yeah, know kind exactly. of thing there's a there's a balance there but I feel like you would cut your nose off to spite your face if you didn't have some right, collaboration because how many times there was a um mass of spoilers <laughs> for anyone who hasn't seen Endgame la, 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 la. but um at the end of Endgame there's a shot where a character, well, fuck it, whatever. It, <laughs> Tony Stark gets the gauntlet, yeah, and he he revert he 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 beats Thanos uh-huh. with a with a single snap because gauntlet's all powerful, right? Yeah. Um, in the original shooting, mm-hmm. he just smirks and snaps, mm-hmm. right? Like Thanos thinks he has the gauntlet, mm-hmm. and he does there's a, there's a switcheroo, and Tony's got it, you know, classic sort of switcheroo. Yeah, yeah. And he's and it's it's a it's just the smart ass smirk that only Robert Downey Jr. can deliver, yeah. <laughs> and a snap. And I'm sure that would have worked fine. Right. I'm sure that would have worked fine. In the edit, um, it, it it just wasn't it was it didn't have the same impact that the, the Russo brothers, the directors, were hoping to have. And the editor who edited many films, mm-hmm. so he's a very integral part of the creative conversation as well, said, "What if you hearken back to the the last line of Iron Man one, which is what kicks off this entire 22 mm. movie episode?" And you have him say, I am an Iron Man. Mm-hmm. Because the line right before that scripted was Thanos saying, I am inevitable. Uh-huh. And then That's rather great. than just have like the smirk, you do the switcheroo, yeah. you do the reveal, yeah. and then Tony says, I am Iron Man. Snap. <laughs> that moment in the theater got a rousing round of applause. Yeah. Like it brought a tear to my eye watching that because so it was just... Great. It was 22 films. It was 11 years of yeah. just build up, build up, build up across multiple platforms. And you get to this one moment, this, this your ultimate hero of this entire franchise. Because if Robert Downey Jr. and John Farber fail, this never occurs. Right. And there was no guarantee of success. Yeah. Now, that was a suggestion by someone else. That's the editor. It's a little bit different. But, like, if, yeah. if, the, if the DP had said, or the script supervisor, or fucking the 
uh, a company grip had said, what if he says, I am Iron Man? Mm-hmm. And they f- pass on that. Yeah. That's the difference between great and pretty good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you never want to... So again, this is this is not a podcast dedicated to like fuck critics. Yeah. It's just more a call to arms to be actually critical and yeah. not just a complainer. Use critical thinking. Right. Don't just critique. Um, there was a... In Game of Thrones, there was a whole critique about... Uh, a dragon gets shot out of the sky, mm-hmm. right? And there was a whole article about it. Me and my friends um, had a, a, a spirited yet, I thought, fun debate back and forth in mm-hmm. terms of, like, whether or not the scene made sense. And from my standpoint, like, specifically where the article made sense. What they hung their hat on. Well, yeah, because they made these wild mathematical assumptions that weren't based in anything. Like, <laughs> right. Even the eyeball test. Like, and, I, and this was like me like getting ready in the morning pre-coffee. Yeah. <laughs> but they were they were making this argument that the, the dragon was like a thousand meters away. Right. Yeah, a thousand meters is like three thousand feet. And I said, man, that just seems very high up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> very, very high up. That is high up. And so I was, I was looking at the, the clip. Someone posted the clip on YouTube and I was like, well, that dragon is about, you know... Take into account scale, but he's about the height of this castle wall, mm-hmm. roughly, from a couple of different angles. Yeah. I said, and and the, the castle's up on a cliff, so I was like, well, okay, that's pretty tall, but it's not 3,000 feet tall. <laughs> no. You know, so then I, I looked up what uh, the, an average castle wall was. It's like 40 feet. Yeah. I was like, well, okay, that's definitely not 3,000 because, right. you know, the, the again, eyeball test, but the eyeball test is about double, so that's about, you know, 100 feet right. max. Yeah. Anyway, so I started. I went down this whole rabbit hole of like mathematics, and basically, at no point using like the again, also using eyeball tests, but like with just a little bit of context. Yeah, you know, a little bit of analysis, deeper analysis. Right. Could I ever put this dragon more than three hundred and fifty, three hundred and sixty feet from <laughs> right. any target, from any of the the key components of the scene? Right. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that the uh, you know that the person working probably out of fucking India who's doing the VFX for this show, yeah, is is uh, did take some creative liberties with scale. Right. I mean, it happens. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that different angles might have just given the illusion that the thing, but it, in no point did it ever seem, yeah, a thousand feet or three thousand feet up in the air, a thousand right. meters in the air, and just it never, never yeah. did. You wouldn't even see it. But, it wouldn't be in the frame. But see, but see, that's not. The, but see, the author of that article to make an assumption. I don't think was really concerned with that. I think his concern was to prove that this was poor mathematics and poor physics in a show because because that's what he that's what his goal was. And I'm sure in his mind, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna disprove this scene. I'm gonna seem real smart in the process. Yeah, and I'm going to get a lot of clicks because right. angry fans of Game of Thrones are gonna flood in to like mm-hmm. argue my point and and mm-hmm. people who you know comic book guys who are like this is the worst episode ever <laughs> they're gonna get on and they're gonna you know then i get it from a from a from a marketing standpoint i suppose those techniques work yeah but um but the mathematics just didn't add and right. again this is where what i see over and over again is just yeah the bare minimum yeah of analysis before these criticisms are formed exactly like this 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 idea that a, a certain character can't kill a bad guy Right. When they've spent, they literally spent three seasons of her training. <laughs> right. And someone made a meme. They were like, uh, the character's name is Arya, right? They were like, yeah. for those complaining that Arya couldn't have killed the Night King, um, they spent, the show literally spent three seasons showing her become the world's, like, best assassin. <laughs> Jon Snow learned to ride a dragon in five minutes. <laughs> right, exactly. And no one questions that. <laughs> right. No one questions that whatsoever, right? Like, they, they show one scene of him, like, 
holding on for dear life, and then all of a sudden he's an expert dragonfly. Like, how the fuck did that occur? <laughs> right, right. But um, but because because emotionally, that's who we want to be the yeah. only hero. And right. The idea that this young girl would instead be the the, the savior of Winterfell. Yeah. I think uh, was very tough for some people to accept. They have a great Starbucks in Winterfell. I heard it's delicious. <laughs> it is delicious. The pumpkin spice latte <laughs> with giant milk. The, dra- the dragon spice latte. The with dragon giant- spice latte with giant milk is. <laughs> To superb. die for. It's to die for. It's to die for. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So so as we start to bring this to a close, I just think that uh, we we here at the Grindhouse love film. We yes. love we love critiquing film. We love having our opinion of film, and we think that it's important for the audience to have that as well. Mm-hmm. What I think is missing sometimes online, especially online, mm-hmm. is that deeper level of critical thought. Yes. behind some of these criticisms. If you love the franchise or the movie or whatever as much as you say you do, then put a little more thought into your responses and do a little research. There's a thing called Google. It's one. It's amazing. Right, and I'm not saying you have to be obsessive like me who will spend all day researching <laughs> and backstory of every character, but... It's like, it's like your girlfriend. Don't say the first thing that comes to your mind because it's going to end badly for you. I like to go to my other favorite uh, philosopher, yes, Dr. Ian Malcolm, mm-hmm. when he said, you spend so much time thinking about whether you could do something, you never thought to think if you should. That's right. Good one. Way to go, Ian. <laughs> You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the From Your Mother's Basement Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher and wherever all fine podcasts can be found.